Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. And Steve, we are on the road again for this episode. That's right, Eric. We'll hear some interviews from our recent travels, like the one we got with author Blake Crouch, whether we liked it or not. Some might say I burst through and demanded a seat at the table, which is true. And Jamie Mason tells us how it felt to wait for an invite to appear on this podcast. You start checking your email like a crazy person, and you keep pressing the enter button, how about now, how about now? And we hear from a panel of top editors about the highly professional and sensitive job of editing a manuscript. Your character doesn't work. Okay, thanks, asshole. All that plus a report from your time at the Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee convention and a chat with Vancouver-based author Dietrich Kaltais about crime novels and punk rock. But first, Steve, read any good books lately? Eric, I have read an amazing number of good books recently. I hosted a panel in Milwaukee when I was there for Murder and Mayhem. And on that panel was a writer with whom I wasn't familiar. His name's Nathan Singer. And I read his book Transorbital before the panel. And I got to tell you, it was a real surprise. I knew nothing about the writer or the book going in. And it is this story about the 1950s, which is sort of the heyday of transorbital lobotomies. And there's a guy, <laughs> there's a guy traveling around the country in the lobotomobile um, doing transorbital lobotomies. It's very dark. Uh, the story's mostly told from the perspective of his assistant, who happens to be hooked on Thorazine is a super fun, super dark read. And uh, getting to know Nathan while I was in Milwaukee was a real pleasure. How about you, Eric? You read anything good? Yeah, I like you. I've had the pleasure of reading a lot of really good books lately. A, a lot of advanced copies of stuff that's coming out uh, early next year. And a lot of people that we're now going to have on the podcast as a result. But I did want to talk about one book that I read recently, uh, again, like you, uh, from an author that I had not read previously, a guy named Harry Hunsaker and his novel, The Devil's Country. And it was a book that I had read a little bit about and seen it out and about and finally got a chance to catch up with it and ended up just really, really liking it. It's set in the dusty West Texas and it's got a great lead character who's sort of a, a man with a past and has his, his great sense of justice and it ends up becoming this sort of revenge slash redemption story, but just had that real sort of sun-baked flavor that really gave me a sense of the place and just a, a really fast moving but intricate story that I ended, really ended up digging. I'm definitely going to check out more of Harry Hunsaker's work. Well, with that said, let's get right into our first interview with best-selling author, screenwriter, and self-proclaimed big idea man, Blake Crouch. We talked to Blake last month while in Toronto at BoucherCon Crime and Mystery Convention about his latest novel, Dark Matter, and about his burgeoning media empire of film and TV projects. And also about our collective midlife crises. And when we first entered his hotel room, Steve, we were promised a pillow fight. Uh, you've described the Wayward Pines series as a combination of horror, mystery, thriller, sci-fi, and fantasy. Uh, do you... Pick a lane, Blake. Come on. Yeah, come on, buddy. Stick with what you I know. Mean, it's kind of a romance also. <laughs> Throw that in there. Do, do you think much about genre when you sit down to write? Not really anymore. It, it feels, I mean, I love coming to Balchicons and Left Coast Crimes, but I feel increasingly like, do I totally belong here? Because my, my books are very much uh, outside genre these days. I want to write something that a reader cannot put down, that they'll stop 
you know, cooking and making beds and taking kids to school to finish. That's just the baseline that I want to reach, and I don't care if it's crime or sci-fi realm. I guess the one thing these days that does drive the stuff I'm interested in is, is there some piece of emerging science that is at the heart of it that interests me that I want to explore and that would naturally give rise to a story. Are you a bit of a science geek in that way? Like, are you constantly seeking out, like, oh, someone developed a new particle accelerator kind of thing? And that, I am. That excites you. I am, yeah. I mean, it, it's so fascinating, and there's so many amazing venues now from, you know, Science Friday to, you know, Scientific American and yeah. all the things that are emerging right now. It, it's just, it's wild and perfect for the kind of stories I tell. I, th- I think that's going to lead us perfectly into uh, Steve a little fanboying out about dark matter. Well, I have a couple questions about dark matter, which I love, but uh, dark matter on the one hand is a very huge subject, the multiverse, right? When you're going into a story like that, you said you're interested in the scientific piece of it, but it's also a fantastic character study uh, about the relationships in this marriage and this family and this guy making an effort to go back and find his family again in the perfect moment that they had. What was your way into that story? Because it seemed like such a huge subject matter to have to tackle. Yeah. Um, I mean, going back as far as 10 years, I had wanted to write something about that had to do with quantum mechanics. I was fascinated with activity of subatomic particles and being in multiple places at once. So that was, I was doing sort of a, a lot of homework on that for a long time. But like as you point out, like that means nothing if you don't have a way in. Like what's the character? What's the, and for me, Especially lately, uh, it's been a wild last couple of years. Personally, I have to ask, like, what what is it about this story that I need to tell for myself? Like, I think all of my books are therapy in reverse. Where Pines for me was very much about. I, I was born and raised in the very fundamentalist South, and the idea of Calvin and the doctrine of predestination and basically a lack of free will was something that I really, once I confronted that, I kind of broke away from my faith and Weird Pines was very much about exploring that and Dark Matter was about exploring kind of the, the path not taken you get to your mid-30s and you look at the choices you've made in the life trajectory that you've set for yourself and you start asking some pretty hard questions so the way in was writing a character who was at a similar place in his life which is this Jason Dessen guy who is a physicist or a physics professor rather could have been an amazing physics leader in the world but he he made one choice and it's always sort of haunted him that shadow path out there and and I <clears throat> I definitely was feeling that as well and I, I think that my own inner like turmoil and struggle and and that bled through into his character so that was the way in it was sort of my midlife crisis book it plays perfectly into our theory that it's a midlife crisis we, we, we almost didn't want to broach the subject for, for fear that we were way off base or it was yeah. too touchy but you you said it, not us. Yeah. So it's, it's fair game. So this is this is a little bit of uh, introspection on your part that Absolutely. just that led you into you know multiple realities and <laughs> Absolutely. okay. Yeah, I was worried that it said more about me than yeah. you that I thought it was a midlife crisis book. Um, but that, I found that really touching, right? Because I was I, I came into it expecting a variation on a time travel book, mm-hmm. and I left there really feeling connected to Jason and the story. And uh, having some introspective moments about, you know, what would I do mm-hmm. if I suddenly lost everything that was important to me, even if I wasn't aware that it was important to me prior to losing it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did that emerge as you wrote? Did you sort of sculpt it around the science? And then you're like, oh, wait, there's a very human story here. One of the first 
big breakthroughs for me is um, was the idea of the box, and I came up with with that when I was in Chicago. Uh, Marcus Aki is one of my best friends. We get together, kind of when we're like struggling to for our next idea or something. And anyway, we'd gotten together uh, in his neighborhood in Logan Square with the book is set, and I was pitching a whole handful of things. When I talked to start talking about the box, he was like, "That's your book." That was my first like, "Oh, okay, I can, I, I'm starting to see this now." And oddly, you know, the marrying the whole Jason Dessen personal struggle into that wasn't a huge issue. It, it kind of fell into place pretty quick. Too quick, as I found in my trying to figure out my next book and working my way through it. Like, that doesn't always happen, you know. <laughs> well, Marcus does take a lot of credit for that, just so you know. When, yeah. when you're not around, he's like, oh, yeah, no, that was, that was mostly me. That's cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I named Brilliance, so. Oh, oh, look at this. He's actually referring to it as the Seiki effect at this point, is he not? <laughs> I think, yeah. That's actually a good title for a very medium book. <laughs> I'm just waiting for, you know, since you do sort of create your own genre out of these multiple genres, I'm, how long do you think until the phrase Crouchian <laughs> enters the lexicon of like, oh, have you read this book? Oh, it's very Crouchian. Oh, yeah, well, I think I've got to write a few more of, the, of these reality uh, shifting books before we get into that space. Dark Matter came out a year ago. Uh, what, what is your relationship to your books after they've been published? It sounds weird to say, but I think all writers never really think they're going to have a successful book. It's odd after you publish something that a lot of people love, because there's definitely more pressure that comes with... You realize the power of a big idea and of trying to, to match a big idea to a very personal human story. I look back on that and I'm like, wow, that was... I, I caught some lightning there in, in a bottle. Why did I catch... What was it about the confluence of things and how do I tap back into that. And, and how do you plagiarize yourself, basically, to, to, to do it again? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How do I write the same book, but just change the names a little bit? No, it's like the Hollywood thing. We just we want the same, but different. Well, okay, you mentioned Hollywood, and I, I, you're, you're basically the, starting your own kind of media empire here. You've got books, and now you're, you're, you've got, you're dominating TV. You've had The Wayward Pines, and now you're uh, the second season of Good Behavior. Is that... Do you like juggling that many different projects at once, or does it get a little hectic sometimes? It's a, it gets a little hectic. Um, I love and have loved the experience that I've had in Hollywood and, and TV, and it's a very collaborative process. We can also just suck your time away from writing books and big ideas. So it was a challenge because, you know, I was always told going in that, you know, you would, if you sell your book and you're even lucky enough to have it made, you'll be very removed from the process. That wasn't my experience. The doors were opened for me. I mean, some might say I burst through them and demanded a seat at the table, which is true. That's Which is good. That's <laughs> um, what you have. You have to be your own advocate. But figuring out, like, what is the best use of my time, not just for me, but for, like, a TV project? Like, where, where can I plug in and be most effective? I mean, it's not answering and weighing in on every costume choice. It's not... <laughs> disappearing down the rabbit hole of, you know, this production design element or that. It's, it, I think it's at the big idea stage. Casting is probably pretty Absolutely huge for you. As far as, like, especially, especially the key components, of, yeah. course, of course. Characters that have lived in your head for a while, and now all of a sudden you have to translate that. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So d we asked about uh, how your relationship changes over time with regards to your books. By adding a layer of, of screenwriting to it, mm. what does that do to your relationship to the original concept in the book when you've now mm. dimensionalized it into TV and film? It muddles it all up in my head, to be honest with you, uh, because I spent, after I finished writing Dark Matter, the novel, I spent 
seven months doing drafts of the script, and you know you start to forget which scene came from which source <laughs> and which medium. And I like it a lot. I I, I think it's a, f- a really interesting exercise in being economical with storytelling. Yeah. Uh, I, I find that after I've been working on scripts for a long time, I'm almost cutting to the bone my like setting a scene in a book it's just whereas before I look back at my old books and man there's so much heavy <laughs> lifting going into uh, just putting a scene setting it in the reader's mind I'm like not actually a lot happened in these early books because if you just strip away the describing <laughs> characters and describing the environment they're in like it's a hundred pages where as now one of the things I really like about the books I'm writing is it, it's very economical and a lot of shit happens yeah do you do you ever feel, you know, now that you've had that experience, do you ever feel a little bit guilty about getting angry at movies that came before where you were like, well, they changed the book too much. They cut out all that junk. And you get angry at the screenwriter and now you're like, yes, oh. Yes. I mean, but that's very justified in many instances. <laughs> Are you prepared for somebody to say that to you? No, they like, yelled at me before. I was like, I wrote the adaptation of that episode. I, cha- I made the choice to change it. I'm like, oh, well, it sucks. Thank you. Blake, it's it's been great to talk with you and, and for inviting us. So we're we are doing this in Blake's actual hotel room. Yeah. But when we first walked in, we were promised a pillow fight. <laughs> I actually I have a different question. I'd like to know why the bathtub's full of ice. <laughs> what are you planning? Luring us in here? Get ready. Yeah. I, I've got two kidneys. I can give one up. I mean, we could go in the bathroom right now and just see what happens. <laughs> Well, you know, Eric, we didn't get the pillow fight we were promised, but I felt like we had a pillow fight of wits. And I think we lost. But we both got out with both of our kidneys, and that's positive. <laughs> that's that's the best you can say about any meeting with Blake Crouch, I think, right there. <laughs> I left with both my kidneys. Well, Steve, you recently traveled to Milwaukee, Wisconsin for the One Day Murder and Mayhem Convention that's put on by our friends John and Ruth Jordan of Crime Spree Magazine. And you get a chance to talk to several writers while you were there. That's right, Eric. I also got a chance to chat live with our book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, on what was a whirlwind trip and a really great time. It has been a few days since we were at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee together, and I thought I would start this segment by asking how you guys feel about the event now that it's in the rear view. Oh, man. I think it's taken a couple of days just to recover. There's nothing more that introverts want to do than hang out with people that they love and care for and never get to see. But then introverts got to introvert afterwards. So we got to hibernate for a little bit. Uh, Kate, you were the MC at this year's Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee. What was that experience like for you? Being at Murder and Mayhem, they're like the nicest, most forgiving people in the world. So if you are doing something for the very first time, like I was emceeing for the very first time. They're incredibly gracious. So what books did you pick up at Murder and Mayhem that you're excited about reading? Yep. Oh, I met Matthew Fitzsimmons this weekend. Uh, super nice guy. He's very difficult to miss because he's six foot seven, which is a lot taller than I am. He writes the Gibson Vaughn series. That's his protagonist. And they're uh, political thrillers. Um, so his... He's got three books out. The most recent is Cold Harbor. So I'm, I'm really excited to get to start reading his books. You go to these conferences and you meet up with your friends. And uh, there's an old, old expression, if uh, enough people tell you to do something, you should probably do it. So I had on two separate occasions, 
both Rob Hart and Erica Neubauer uh, mentioned to me that the best uh, debut that they read so far was by Kristen LaPianca, and that's The Last Place You Look. As luck would have it, those are two of the authors I spoke with at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee, so we'll listen to some of those interviews. But we're going to start with the event's co-founder, John Jordan. What does this event mean to you? When we first started it, the very first year, we did a three-hour panel of nine authors. We scrambled it together in two weeks, and so we basically just called our friends, knowing we could ask them for a favor. And so we've kind of kept the format of inviting authors that we would consider family. And I think now that we're in our 14th year, I think we've only had one author that I would not invite back. So we've got a pretty good record so far. But it's, it's the feeling that everybody here is on equal footing and everybody's friendly and talks to each other. It kind of gives us that sense of it. Most people come and they come back every year, every year, every year. Stephen Mac Jones, welcome. Thank you very much. We just got off stage. We had a fun time at our panel, which was called the worst panel ever. <laughs> did, did it live up to its name? Actually, no, because it was wonderful. Uh, a lot of laughs, good people, great writers, so I was honored to be on that panel. So uh, your book is set in Detroit, August Snow, right. and now we're in Milwaukee. Uh, how are these two cities different from each other in your estimation? One city makes a lot of great beer, uh, and the other city makes the world's number one vodka. Uh, yes, Valentine Vodka, voted number one. So... Beer, vodka, you couldn't ask for two better cities. I think you've got your priorities straight. I think I do, sir. <laughs> I'm standing here with author Linda Jaffe-Hall, and we met yesterday when you arrived for the event here in Milwaukee. That is correct. I think it's possible that you had the worst travel day ever. You want to share with our listeners what happened? I did, although I had a perfectly lovely flight, with the exception of the man sitting next to me who was going to meet or see for the second time a woman that he'd met on the internet and who um, he wanted to talk about no matter what I was doing, which was trying to write. And then he asked me about what I wrote, and then he wouldn't let me do any work at all on the plane. Your day did not just end with a, uh, a rude co-passenger on the airplane. No, it was a little tricky and troubling. There was the, uh, the co-passenger, and then my bag was the only bag that didn't arrive on the flight. So I was looking at wearing the same outfit for three days. The bag did arrive that had been lost on the plane and came out later. And then I got to my hotel room and the toilet exploded and flooded the floor. So it just started a little rough, but it got better after that. Is this your first time at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee? It is. I, a lot of my friends have been here many times and I've been wondering and wanting to come here. So when I got the invitation, I was super excited. I am here in the book room at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee with Nathan Singer. Nathan... Uh, is this the first time you're seeing printed copies of Black Church Furnace? This is literally the first time I am seeing copies of this book, and I am incredibly excited. This book has been 10 years in the making. Well, it's 10 years in limbo, I should say, and to have it finally out right now is incredibly exciting. Why do you think Milwaukee is the right place to launch a dark novel? Uh, because Milwaukee has all the great people, particularly right now. One of the things that we've been talking about all weekend so far is that even though the stuff that we all write is dark, you know, crime writers are, are some of the funniest, silliest people around. I am here with... 
Paul Garth. And Mark Rapaz. So, Paul, why did you decide to make Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee your first writer's conference experience? I heard Murder and Mayhem is both more intimate and also more focused on the hard-boiled, noir side of things. As first-timers to a writer's conference, do you feel like you learned anything or, or uh, are going to take away any information that you didn't previously have? Uh, I know Krab McGraw moves now because of the wee hours last night. I can defend myself in a bind, maybe to lethal effect. Yes. <laughs> I am here right now with Kristen Lepianka. She just finished her panel. Uh, is this your first time at Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee? It is, yes. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've done a lot of conferences for the first time this year, like BoucherCon was my first time, and I'm having a really good time on the circuit. What's something about Milwaukee you've always wanted to try but you haven't had a chance to do since you've been here? I haven't had a Milwaukee beer while I'm here yet, so hopefully I will rectify that later. So you've obviously not been to John and Ruth's house yet. No, I got in late last night. I drove from Columbus, Ohio. It's about a seven and a half hour drive, so it was it was late when I got in. Well, I can promise you that you will find a clawfoot bathtub full of many beers when you get to their castle. That's what I heard. I'm looking forward to that. We've just wrapped up Murder and Mayhem in Milwaukee, and I'm with Matthew Fitzsimmons. So you were on a panel today. What, what was the panel about? Well, the panel was called Nick Petrie's Mom is in the audience, but it was actually about writing process and sort of the practical side of being an author and being a writer on a day-to-day basis and what that looks like. What, what kind of advice would you give to somebody about the practical side of being an author? There, there's the old joke that the hardest part of being a writer is convincing your significant other that, that uh, sitting on a couch and doing nothing is work. And I think there's a lot of sort of vagaries of being an author that you need an understanding partner who's going to go, okay, they need to stare, sit and stare at a wall for an hour and a half and I'm not going to bother them or, or that's quote-unquote work. It's a good gig if you can get it. <laughs> If you ever get a chance to make it to Murder and Mayhem, definitely do it. It is a really great time. The people are really down to earth, and you have some of the most fantastic conversations about writing and almost anything else besides writing. Well, Steve, I was waiting uh, on my curb with my suitcase all packed, and you forgot to pick me up. There was only so much room in the private jet. (laughs) (laughs) You and the Malmans in a private jet. Now that's a podcast I would listen to. Well, I know that I'll be at this sister event, Murder and Mayhem in Chicago next year. And maybe for that, I'll leave you behind, see how you like it. Well, you know, Eric, we were together for our talk with Jamie Mason in Toronto. That is true, Steve. I remember that. You know, Jamie Mason is a great writer, and she has a quality that I guess really all mystery writers should have, a deep-rooted suspicion of everyone. I, no, I'm, I'm suspicious of more conceptually than I, I, I feel like I have good suspicions right now. What's conceptual suspicion? I, I don't believe people necessarily. Yeah. So you're distrustful more a than little, suspicious. Yes, a little distrustful. Okay. But and, uh, very friendly. We've heard a rumor oh that you never fight with your husband. Oh. Does this mean that you have a perfect relationship or that he knows better? It's definitely more the relationship thing. It's not a no better thing. We, we really, it's very weird. I've known him for 23 years. And I think I've been mad at him eight times. We just agree on almost everything. And when we don't, whoever feels stronger 
It's, it's fine. Yeah, so it's it's peaceful planet. It's creepy. We totally screwed up our children because they have no template for conflict. They have no idea <laughs> what to do. You're not so, preparing them for the real world. Uh, yeah, I know. So we fell down on the job. But yeah, that's the one thing we don't have to worry about. Yeah. Well, so okay, you have this perfect marriage, <laughs> all right. So how could someone with a relationship like that go and write a novel like Monday's Lie, which is, let's say, not the perfect marriage? I have eyeballs in my head, and I have seen some you, things. You watch the rest of us. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I just had a funny experience because I don't know if my husband will listen to this. Uh, Our wives don't, so why? Okay, yeah. um, somebody stopped me, and they said Monday's Lie when they saw a picture of my husband on Facebook they were like, that's him. That's the guy from Monday's Life. And they, he said that my husband Art looked exactly like what he thought Patrick would look like. And I'm like, I'm not telling him that you said that because Patrick is an asshole. He's the worst. And so yeah, it was very funny. I, uh... You're a self-described coffee addict, but you also like whiskey. Is this how you regulate your even-keeled personality? I like that description. I'm going to go I'm going to go with that. Um yeah, I, I the thing about the whiskey is that now coffee, I mean that doesn't need a lot of explaining. But the thing about the whiskey is I cannot get drunk. I can only get asleep. So, I drink straight liquor because it's slow. Honestly, it's terrible because if I could drink a bucket of whiskey every day, I would. I wow, love it. A bucket. I love it. We, we have our sound bud. <laughs> we actually can stop the interview now. <laughs> no, I love it so much. Obviously, that's not good for you. But it's... Um, no, thank, I, you, thank you for that disclaimer. <laughs> kids, don't try this at home. Um, I, I just love it. I love the taste of it. I love the heat of it. And I'm, I'm a mid-range, mid-price whiskey snob. I don't know if you have the itch to do your own podcast, but you should actually have a podcast called A Bucket of Whiskey with Jamie Mason <laughs> oh, God, and just watch so people funny. get progressively sloshed. That was last night in the lobby. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's the strangest thing that's ever happened to you at a conference? Oh, wow, that's easy. In Long Beach, Bachelor Con, uh, I had this fantastic panel on criminal protagonists. There were two things I know that sparked this. I said that we were talking about research, and I said at some point you just start making stuff up, and people will just believe you if you if you if you make it up convincing. Because you know there's only so much I'm willing to do to research murder. Right. So after everything was done, we had a book signing. There was one guy left at the end, and he wouldn't look at me. And he was a young man, and he had not a hair out of place, but it wasn't vanity; it was self consciousness. And he started stammering, and it took him forever to get out the question: How do you? You were talking about research. How do you think it would be? To have first to talk to someone firsthand who, who knows, and I, in this instant, I realized what was on offer. And I don't know if this guy killed one person or if I was talking to a serial killer. The sadness coming off of this guy was the most crushing thing. And all I could think of was, "Lady, <laughs> get out of this!" And I've had writer friends go, "How could you not?" Because he, he was asking me, "Do you really believe if you told it right, someone could understand?" And he wasn't kidding. Wow. And I, uh, yeah, so that's hands down the ways. And three hours later, he comes down the escalator with my agent because we had, I was supposed to have books to give away and they weren't there. And she says, Oh, hey, Jamie, this is so and so. He wants a copy. And I'm like, Oh, God, how did you figure out she was my agent? And that was the last time we ever saw her. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. So, so my little brush with um, who I'm utterly convinced was a murderer was the weirdest thing. Well, now we know why you drink whiskey. Yeah, I need a lot of whiskey. By the bucket. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Your writing has been compared to the work of the Coen brothers, Gillian Flynn, and Alfred Hitchcock. In your estimation, which of those three is the most accurate? 
I would probably say, God, it sounds ridiculous to say this. I mean, Hitchcock only in that the dark humor and the bad things uh, colliding does seem to happen a lot in my books. Coen Brothers is a is a huge compliment. Um, I think that they're capery. I think they're 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 comparing me to more when when things kind of go absolutely off the rails and caper. And Gillian Flynn, that just sounds. That sounds good. I, I don't know. I don't know how ac- accurate that is. I'll take it. But um, yeah, I, I guess I would identify more out of those three with Hitchcock. Listeners may or may not know, but uh, all three of us do share the same agent, Amy Moore Benson. So we're just out of curiosity. When, when you you know place a phone call and have a question, how how quickly does she get back to you? You know, it, I'm, we almost always do it by email. And if it's something important, Johnny on spot. If it's just some sort of an- anxious thing I'm doing, some sort of fluffy thing, I, not very, very quickly, but it's, you can tell what's important and what's not by how fast Amy gets back to you. <laughs> would you Would you consider maybe reaching out to her for me? Because I, <laughs> sure. And, and putting important in important. the subject line. Yeah. Yeah, I guess <laughs> maybe I she always thinks I'm like this close going off the rails. Oh God, Jamie's gonna <laughs> right. completely lose it. Do you have any dirt on Amy that you'd like to share? <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> My favorite, and she, she, she tells a story on me, so I love this story. So okay. when um, we had just put um, the first novel out on submission, and I, you know, you guys know how this is, you start checking your email like a crazy person, yeah. and you keep pressing the enter button, how about now, how about now, how about now, and I would make deals with myself, okay, go make the beds, and you can check again, you know, go to the grocery store, and you can check again. And she knew, you know, of course, that I was on pins and needles, and one morning I hit the refresh and comes up with an email and I can see the first few words of her email. It says, finally, finally some good. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm in my blood pressure shoots to the roof. I grab for the mouse and it skitters across the desk and I drag it back and I hit the button and so help me God the next word is weather. <laughs> finally, finally some good weather. And it was a rejection, which was awesome. Now we actually we know the real reason she drinks whiskey. <laughs> Is that email it, it started that day from your agent? <laughs> I don't know about you, Eric, but I know plenty of writers who would line up to drink a bucket of whiskey with Jamie Mason. Well, I know some people who are really familiar with a bucket of whiskey, and those are the unsung heroes of the book world: the editors. You know, they clean up our prose, they fix our spelling errors, they close up plot holes, and a whole lot more. For our Unpanel this month, we wanted to ask a group of top professionals the secret to being a good editor. I'm Jackie Benzekri, a developmental editor at Modified Editorial based in Colorado. For me, the secret to being a good editor is choosing the right books to work on. I mean, is that too simple? I'm not saying choose easy books to edit. That's not a bad idea, but let's bottom line this. I'm going to be in your head from anywhere from 2 to 12 weeks, so choosing the right manuscript really, really matters. For example, here's what I look for. First, the right relationship with the author. I don't pull punches, and I need to find writers who want that. But also read a room. Some people want blunt, some want loves. you got to be flexible at the delivery. We just have to want the same thing. The second thing is, I can see how I can make a difference in this specific story. Any strong reader with basic pattern recognition skills can help an author write a better book. I want to read the first couple of chapters and see what I can do for this book that no one else can. Otherwise, you don't need me. Also, I'm really big on solutions. Any critic can sit there and be like, your character doesn't work. 
Okay, thanks, asshole. But diving to the root of the right problem and offering one to five solutions to get an author going is a huge key to success for me. This is Peter Rozovsky. I live in Philadelphia, and I've most recently copy-edited two crime novels that will appear early next year for Down and Out Books. There are two secrets to good editing, and they go hand in hand. And the first is to know grammar and spelling and punctuation cold. You know everything, and if you don't know it, you look it up. Was that model car on the road in the year in which the story is set? Is the name, the model name of that car, are you sure it's spelled with two R's rather than one? You're merciless, you're ruthless. And the second is to know when to pull back, to know the writer's voice, to know the kind of story he or she wants to tell, so you know when to let the writer break the rules. I mean, it's the writer's voice, it's not yours. Hi, this is Chantal Osman from New York. I'm a freelance editor and short story writer, and I'd like to thank the Writer Types podcast for having me on to talk about this issue. I believe that the conflict between Ghana and Liechtenstein actually began with the depletion of bamboo in the western Nile River Valley after the local plankton spontaneously reversed their synthesizing of chlorophyll. Truly, we need to step back quite a bit in time to really trace the source of the issue. There is a species of red ant which proliferated in sub-Saharan Africa in the late 1800s. Unfortunately, due to the encroachment of several species of small deer and other native wildlife which expanded from their region due to lack of food source, the ant lost its habitat and quickly became extinct. Fast forward to Monaco, mid-1950. And if you're wondering when I'm going to get to the point, that's why you need a good editor. It's easy for a writer to get too close to their own work. A good editor can recognize what the writer is aiming for and help them shape the story around it. They know what to add and what to take away that will best serve the author's vision without losing their message or their voice. Finding that person can be hard, but they're out there and they'll only make you better. This is Brian Quatermas calling from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm the author of the Dominic Prince series featuring the novels Murder Boy and the forthcoming Trigger Switch. I think the trick to being a good editor is being a good reader. Some people think all editors do is fix problems, but what I try to do, and what the best editors I know try to do, is read carefully and read as an advocate for the audience. What separates a good editor from a beta reader is that an editor should not only have the wide-ranging experience as a reader, but also be able to thoughtfully and tactfully use that experience to spot problems and help the author find solutions to problems on their own. I think it's also helpful for an editor to help an author balance their artistic vision and style with the commercial needs of their publisher and the expectations of their audience. This is why I like working with genre fiction authors, because they seem to be more thoughtful of their audience more than any other authors, crime fiction authors especially. I also think being an author has made me a better editor, and I definitely know being an editor has made me a better author. What do you say, Steve? I think it's time for a story. Our story this time from our partners at Shotgun Honey is by Travis Richardson. Travis is a prolific short story writer and author of the novellas Lost in Clover and Keeping the Record. 
Shotgun Honey is the place to go for crime fiction under 700 words, so get that quick hit of a story when you need it at shotgunhoney.com. The Day We Shot Jesus on Main Street by Travis Richardson. If there are two things you ought to know about Lynchwood, it's that nobody votes Democrat and nobody blasphemes the Lord God Almighty, at least in public. Now, Chad Parrish would have broken rule number one had he lived long enough, and it's cause of rule number two he didn't ever register. He was always making a ruckus about things that we weren't going to change, like changing our minds about them gays or interracial marriages. See, Chad was born in the wrong place. Had he been raised in New York, he might have been praised by liberal comrades for being a creative bastard and all-around troublemaker. But here in Lynchwood, that bird don't fly. Chad had gathered some of the town's ne'er-do-wells. You know, them boys who don't play football and complain about the school's art programs not getting enough funding. Yeah, them types. It seems that Chad had a bug up his butt about the Lynchwood ministry and how we're so successful. It's a congregation the media might label a megachurch, but it's practically the only house of worship all of us in Lynch would go to, except for Chad and a handful of sinners. Well, we're passing the collection plates during service when five of these fellows, dressed in robes and wearing fake beards and long-haired wigs, come bursting through the doors, shouting like banshees. They grabbed the collection money and ran straight for the pulpit, then threw the plates of cash and coins onto the ground, started shouting something about scripture of John and money changers. But it didn't matter what they said. After a few of us men got over the shock, we were up and on our feet heading for them. By this point, them Jesuses were doing some sort of hustle dance. Absolute blasphemy. Fred Conklin grabbed the first Jesus, a skinny little twerp with glasses, and Pyle drove him into the floor. Then the rest of the Jesuses scattered. But I kept my eyes on Chad. Even with the disguise, Anybody could tell it was him with a long, angling body. Could have played basketball had he been so inclined. Two more Jesuses were tackled and pummeled by the congregation. Men, women, children all taking turns on the whooping. Chad and his buddy slipped out the back door. By the time I made it to the parking lot, they were already peeling out in his Mustang. Me, Clifford Dobbs, and Sam Cantrell jumped into our trucks and pursued. Pedaled to the metal, chasing those sons of bitches. We were taking pop shots out the window with our handguns. This is a right to carry state, and if you don't carry, well, that says a lot about your character. Anyhow, trying to shoot left-handed on a moving vehicle on potholed streets ain't no easy feat, but Clifford somehow managed to hit a back tire and send that staying head-on into a telephone pole on Main 1st. The passenger Jesus went out cold, but Chad, the crazy fool that he was, climbed out, Bible in hand, and shouted biblical slogans while running down Maine with his robe flying in the wind, tidy whities underneath. By this time, a few other parishioners arrived, guns in hand, and, well, it was a shooting gallery. Seemed like we all got hits, but that bastard kept running and bouncing here and there with each bullet smack, waving his hands like a maniac. We had target practice on his moving body. Finally, he dropped to his knees, bleeding from all them holes. He looked at us all and then up to the sky and said, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He fell backwards, arms out like he was on a cross, symbolic to the very end. We didn't say much, just stood there for several minutes with goosebumps on our arms. We still don't talk about it much today, 
Some people, like my wife, think we did something wrong. But it was blasphemy straight up. We'd have stoned him in the Old Testament times. Besides, Chad was a liberal, and anybody who knows anything knows Jesus wasn't that way. That's just common sense. We really did spend a lot of time out of the studio last month. You know, shortly after we got back from Toronto, we headed up to the central coast of California for a reading in Monterey. And that's where we met up for the final night of author Dietrich Caltese's book tour. We both got an early look at his latest book, Zero Avenue, and it hooked us both with a great crime story set in the early days of punk rock in Vancouver, Canada. We are here at Noir at the Bar Seaside, which is in Northern California with Dietrich Kaltais. Right. Dietrich, you're down here from Vancouver on a book tour, right. supporting uh, a book that Eric and I both love for obvious reasons. Oh, Big time. Zero Avenue. That's right. right. Thank you. Thank you. So, Zero Avenue is about the early punk rock scene uh, in Vancouver, featuring bands like DOA. Right. What made you decide to write about punk rock in Vancouver and Zero Avenue? It was sort of a, a, a quiet movement, or, or it seemed that way. I, I started researching it, it just the whole thing. It was just so angry, and it just kind of fit with a, you know, a crime theme. So it, it just kind of worked, and I just started writing it, and it just, uh, you know, just kind of worked. And, uh, Zero Avenue definitely stays in line with the, your crime fiction that I really like, where thing, things go badly for almost everyone involved, and there's a lot of mayhem and, and madness going on. How do you rein in some of these plots and the wildness that goes on, or do you, are, are you intentionally trying to make things skid out of control? I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't plot a story, so I, I don't really know where it's going to go when, when I start. I just start writing and, and kind of let, the as the characters develop, they, they, they kind of just go in their own, own directions. And there usually are, like, several little subplots going on on a, a one time. It's kind of like real life, does that too, right? Do you think that lack of planning kind of adds to the mayhem? I think so, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times, you know, you're 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 working on on the story, and things just come. You'll you'll you know, something will happen in the news, or you'll think of something, and it just it's really organic, and uh, it just kind of builds as it goes. You know, one of the things that I thought was really notable when I was reading Zero Avenue is that it has a really distinct rhythm to it. The way that you read the words in your head as you're reading along. Were you conscious of that because you were writing about music? I think so. Uh, I, I started listening to music while I write um, about 10 years ago and at first it was just a way to kind of cut out the white noise like doorbells and kids playing dogs barking like the usual stuff I usually play something that kind of goes along with the tempo of what I'm writing and uh, yeah there, there is a rhythm to it and you know for, for the nine months or so that it took to write Zero Avenue I, I listen to punk rock like you know the stuff from that era as, as much as I could. Are there any other eras or uh, genres of music that you think would inspire uh, a novel? Yeah, I love music, like any kind of music. I, I think, yeah. The classic 60-piece uh, orchestra novel comes next, right? Yeah, yeah. Or somebody at the crossroads or something, you know? Like, yeah, it could be anything. So one of my favorite things in uh, Zero Avenue was... Uh, 
the marijuana catapult that some local drug dealers use to actually try to transport illegal drugs across the Canadian-American border. Is this something that came from your sick, twisted mind, or did you actually read a news story about this? I, I enhanced a news story. Uh, the one I modeled it after was one that was used in Mexico to lob, lob pot over into, into the States. But Zero Avenue is a road that runs exactly along the Canadian-U.S. border. It's unprotected. There, there is no wall. There's nothing. Well, the right? secret's out now. Yeah. You blew it. And, you know, they've, they've discovered drug tunnels going under it, like from, from the residential area, you know, like over into the U.S. side. But you, could, you can walk across anywhere. Like it's, and the border was a different place in the late 70s, too, I think. Exactly, yeah. And, and that was another sort of idea I had, setting it in, in 1979, where there was no... No satellites that could spot pot fields growing inside a cornfield kind of thing. So, You've been on a book tour, and every good punk band that goes on a tour has good horror stories to tell. Yeah. What, are some of the, what are some of the tales you want to tell from your latest trip? Well, you, don't, uh, you go on a book tour with your wife. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there are no, no, no horror stories. <laughs> None that you're going to get. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's pretty tame. Yeah, I think the punk tours would be a little bit more exciting. Well, another good show, Steve, but I have to say it's good to be back in the studio. So what have we learned in our travels? We learned from Blake Crouch that not all midlife crises involve a sports car. Some involve the multiverse and quantum mechanics. Jamie Mason taught us that drinking a bucket of whiskey a day is not good. No, wait. No, it is good. No, hold on. It's not good. I forgot. And Dietrich Kaltais taught us fun new ways to move large amounts of drugs over international borders. Well, that does it for this month. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us. And it would be so nice if you would take the time to write us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and tell a friend about writer types. You can always reach us on Facebook and Twitter and let us know what questions you'd like to hear and who you'd like us to talk to next. The show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. You can find out more about Steve's books, including the upcoming final book in the Greg Salem series at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books, including the upcoming final book in the Lars and Shane series at ericbeatner.com. Join us again on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.